is the next stage with Yudaha Kohen. I'm here in Jerusalem with Sarah Tuttle Singer, the new media editor for Times of Israel. I hope I got that right, the new media Perfect. editor for Times of Israel. Spot on. Uh, the sun is setting. Uh, we're here in the Baca neighborhood of Jerusalem. And, uh, birds are tweeting. You can hear them in the background. It's birds beautiful. Birds are tweeting. <laughs> Sarah, you know, pretty much everyone who I have on this show is somebody who I think is living a great story. Uh, somebody who, like, if they made a movie about your life, it would be widely seen. Like, you Thank you. For as long as Jennifer Lawrence plays me. It's as long as Jennifer Lawrence plays <laughs> me. So I, what I'd like, I think, you know, and what the listeners would probably appreciate is to hear a little bit about you, who you are, um, what brought you here, what your adventure here has been like so far. It's an honor to be on your show. I really appreciate it. And thank you for those kind words. And I, I hope I can live up to that. You know, I, I came here for the first time when I was 16 years old, kicking and screaming against my will. Mm-hmm. My mother decided that this was the summer that I would go to Israel for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the truth is I just wanted to go to the mall and or the beach and wait for Matt Cardenas to call me and ask me out, but my mom had other plans. And you she should know with the exception <laughs> of Matt Cardenas, I had the exact same experience when I was 15. Really? I remember the most, like, meaningful part of my trip here was finding out on the plane that Easy had died. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I remember, I remember and, when that yeah, and so I was on the plane on the way here for the first time. What trip were you on? No, my father brought me. Oh, okay. And it was just like, you know, that I should see Israel, and I was not interested at all. And I was listening to my disc man, if you know what that was. Sure. I had the same man. thing on the plane, too. Right. I was just listening to my disc man. My father had paid for hotels, paid for a tour guide, and it was such a waste. I mean, maybe planted seats. But anyway, your story. Mm-hmm. Matt Carr. Matt, Matt Cardin is waiting for him to call. And, uh-huh. Uh, my mom said, no, Israel is your history, it's mm-hmm. your legacy, it's your family, and it's time for you to go. And so she put me on this plane with 120 other teenagers. Oh, wow. I was kicking and screaming, you know, and sent me off. Now, I had been raised on all these wonderful stories mm-hmm. of Israel. My great-grandmother had come here at the turn of the century. She was uh, the niece of Mendel Rand, who built the parts of Nakhlaot, including mm-hmm. Batei Rand, that is part of our family's history. And she told my grandmother and my mother these wonderful stories about being in the old city where he or her uncle was living and she was working with him. And she had this wonderful time there and also had this hot, steamy, sexy love affair with an Ottoman official up on one of the rooftops. And when her family found out Is there a plaque on that spot? Is there a plaque on the roof? I'm searching for that roof. I don't know which one it is. (laughs) It's like looking for a ghost. No, but all around Jerusalem we have these plaques of things that happen. This is where Sarah Tuttle's fingers great-grandmother had her love affair up on a roof. Uh One day I'll figure it out and I can put that plaque there. But when her family found out about it, they were a little horrified. She came from a a nice Hasidic background family. And so they sent her as far away from Jerusalem as they could. Not back to Poland because that was too close. They sent her all the way to Chicago. And that probably saved her life because everyone else who went back to Poland were annihilated in the Holocaust. And she hadn't had plans on staying in Jerusalem as far as I know up until that affair. So who knows what would have happened. But because of that, she met my great-grandfather and they had my grandmother and had my mother and had me. My mom came in 1967, shortly after the Six-Day War, and we are, we're celebrating the, um, that victory over the Jordanians, where Jerusalem came back into our hands. And my mom And we came here. back to her. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that, yeah. And my mother 
was there just right after, and so she would tell me these incredible stories about walking through the old city and the smell of the spices and the coffee and the, the scarves floating and the a camel marched through Damascus Gate, and, and she was so alive with that experience and it filled her. You know, she shone with it. Her eyes shone with it when she would tell me these stories. And still, I, you know, was was pissed off that she was sending me off there because mm -hmm. I wanted to be at the mall and uh, have Matt Cardino six or eight. And, Still, Matt, if you're listening to this, you know. Call me. <laughs> call me. But um, she made me go, and it turns out she was right. And it was the first time in my entire life where the parts of my identity as a Jew in America, these different pieces, like in a mosaic, came together. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I didn't have to explain why I kissed the thing on the door, why I um, don't eat shrimp and uh, pepperoni pizza and why I can't go ice skating with my friends on a Friday night. It was the first time when all around me I saw these people with such vigor and passion and, and, and you know, sometimes obstinance, but such love all in one place. And I fell in love, head over heels, and I vowed to come back over and over again. And that's what I've been doing. And there have been did. a lot of twists and turns along the way, uh -huh. you know, I mean, including... Um, some major setbacks and sort of in disillusionment and uh, and divorce for that matter. But you know, moving here has been it's been an adventure. It's yeah, been a, it's part of a journey. Right, and it's an exciting story. Meaning, it's a meaningful it's a story. story. You know, right. it's at the end of the day, it's a mm -hmm. love story. It's what it is. All right, that's what it is here. I think a lot of people feel that moving here is difficult. It is difficult. Oh my God, right. it's so hard. First right. of all, like. There's no such thing as a line here. Mm -hmm. The only person who believes in a line is the person in the front of the line, mm -hmm. and then he or she will defend that line like it's the you know the the border with Egypt. But everyone else, it's like the wildebeest scene in the Lion King, and it's right. crazy and it's chaotic, and people are rude and they're pushy. But it's or maybe because the, it's home. Or, it's, right, but it's also because it's a different culture. I think people come with like very Western expectations and sure. assume it's going to be you know Western manners, so to speak. And it's a very Semitic society. Especially Jerusalem. I don't know if where you live is the same. Mm -hmm. You might live, you said, well, by Rehoboth. I'm here half the week. And, uh -huh. so, and, and totally. But, and, and that's part of the beauty of mm -hmm. it. And learning how to, to adapt and, and embrace it. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's a process and it's an adventure. My feeling is that life is difficult here. And I think people who look at my life from the outside assume it's very difficult. It's meaningful. It's meaningful. It's, and it, it's never and, boring. And it's happening in an incredibly inspiring context. Like the bigger story in which those difficulties are taking place is a great story. I feel like a big character in a great story. And, uh, and I honestly think that's the purpose of life. Like we're here to be big characters in great stories. And that's the thing about living here. And also, you know, for people who love this place or are in, hugging and wrestling with this place from afar too, when you do that, you're not just reading our mm -hmm. history, you're, you're actively helping to create it, and that, mm -hmm. I think, is, right. it's, it's a gift. And, and that might be, you know, the message of these holidays, like Yom Atzma'ut, Yom Yushalayim, we're in that kind of, like, holiday season. For me, you know, what's really empowering about these days is that, like, you and I can do things in our lives that put another holiday in the Jewish calendar, that, like, we're actually living history, like, our people's stories unpaused. And we're participating in, in this incredible chapter of our people's story with the ability to actually facilitate, to impact, to influence how it, the directions it takes, etc. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah. I agree. 
You know, one thing I think about is, you know, our calendar, mm. the Jewish calendar is lunar. And so when we look up at the moon tonight, that's the exact same shape of the moon mm. that people saw on this day back in 1967 or on, on Yomad's moon when you look up at the moon when you're celebrating mm. and fireworks are going off. That's the same moon that they saw mm -hmm. that night. And that, I love that, that connection with the continuity. And it's just gives me goosebumps. Right. No, it's, it's an incredible way to live our lives, really. And uh, yeah. And on some level, I actually do feel sorry for people who have easier lives, but meaningless. I well, can't I find... I, hope I think everyone finds meaning in their own I way, hope so. This is how we're finding meaning. No, no, no. The truth is, I, I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who aren't finding meaning in their lives, and I think that's sad. It, it's a reality. Uh, I see it a lot when I travel. Here, I don't see it so much. I think the more you're here, the more you're just like used to people have some kind of meaning. But uh, there is, like, I think, a crisis that people feel lack of meaning. And I think that's why we see the resurgence of all these kind of like destructive ideologies around the world now. Um, just look at you know, the United States today, the strength of the alt-right, and people are looking for something. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you may be right. But here, just walk out your door. Yeah, no, you're in here, the story. here there's meaning. Just, oh, for sure. Whenever I'm having a hard day, I go to the shuk, to Machne Yehuda, and okay. I just smells all around me. So you've been here, how, how many years have you been here so far? Uh, it'll be nine years in October. Well, nine years, wow, that's a long time. That's a long time. So you're, you're a pretty outspoken voice on social media. Um, I have opinions. Yeah, you have opinions. <laughs> I'm sure you have I a like vision for this country. Sure. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your vision for this country. Like, what do you really see here? Where do you see it going? What do you want it to be? Personally, like when I look at Israeli society today, I think that almost every issue... Uh, being debated is expressions of like, a friction between Jewish nationalism and like liberalism. And I think that for me, ultimately, the goal is to transcend that ostensible conflict because ultimately, moving forward, I think will require us to produce uniquely Hebrew models of universalism that might differ from Western universalism today. But from what I see from your posts, and I'm I can't claim to have seen like 100% of your posts, but uh, there's stuff you post that I really, really agree with and I really connect to. There's stuff that you post that I'm just like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and and a, But a lot of what you post, like you seem to be like a very outspoken voice of liberalism in Israeli society and a, a very uniquely like Western style of liberalism in Israeli society. Maybe. I mean, I think my, you know, my hope is that we can come up with a new shared narrative mm -hmm. for everybody. Right. And I'm not just talking about a shared narrative between Arabs and Jews, but mm -hmm. also between all the different tribes, different tribes within Jewish Israeli society, and mm -hmm. also with you know within Muslim society, Christian society, and Sudanese, big, right, and um, and Eritrean, and just we find a way to really share this place. Mm -hmm. And I don't quite know how to do that. I'm not running for Knesset mm -hmm. any time ever. Although you know elections are going to be. Quite in frequent. a few months and then probably in a few more months. It's like Groundhog Day. It's exciting. No, the truth is it's exciting. And, and the elections, I know that people talk about it's a big waste of money, but in the end, it employs a lot of people, at least in the activist community, on all sides of the map. That's interesting. You know, I'm, um, I'm curious to see how this shapes out and mm -hmm. how what the different people running will have learned from the previous mm -hmm. election and how, by, essentially, we've taken the pulse of how Israel is feeling mm -hmm. um, in the last results. Now, the thing about this place is the political and the emotional temperature can change on any given Tuesday, mm -hmm. so who knows how people will be feeling in September, but it's, it, it was an interesting sort of baseline measurement. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know how to get there, but I do know that one way to start is by talking to one another and getting mm -hmm. to know one another and actually giving a damn about Like actual engagement. Other. Yeah. Right. And not actual engagement in sort of a sterile, mm -hmm. you know, coexistence meeting. No kind kumbaya, of thing, vegetarian meal. Excuse yeah. Excuse us. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. But actually meet people in the streets right. and form friendships that where you may not be talking about the conflict right away. Mm -hmm. you know, one conversation's not gonna change the world, but it will lead to another and another and another, and you have the basis for caring, because the more you care about somebody, the less likely you are to believe any you know, sort of incendiary rhetoric about yeah, them. The, the and more and you, you humanize. Right, right, right. So you, you talk about narratives. You know, The way I would define a narrative, especially here, mm -hmm. is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. It's a great definition. And I think in the last hundred years, there's millions of facts, mm -hmm. when, especially when it comes to the conflict between us and the Palestinians. And I think each side just kind of cherry picks the facts that, you know, suit our political agendas. Um, so, and I think what's really the challenge for me in, in doing some of this work is that I find that both Palestinians and Israelis are very threatened by the narrative of the other. There's this mm -hmm. feeling that if his story is true, my story is less true. But see, that's where they... Sorry, Mrs. Hirsch, I'm forgetting the word in grammar. And, where you have the, is it an article or a connector? You know, like, and and but. How do those words fit in, in grammar? Uh -oh. Never mind. But you don't have to say, this is true, or... Mm -hmm. You don't have to offer a rebuttal to someone else's narrative. Right. Say, yeah, but what about? You can say, right. and, that's true, and this also happened, and this also happened. No, I, I actually really believe that the authentic Jewish reaction to tochacha, to like uh, rebuke mm -hmm. um, or accusations, is introspection, not defensiveness. Mm -hmm. But you have to be strong to respond to accusations with introspection. Most people are defensive. My feeling at this point in time, and it could change, is that Israelis are right when we talk about ourselves, Palestinians are right when they talk about themselves, and we both get it wrong when we talk about the other. I think we're both very much like superimposing identities and ideologies and motivations on the other that have almost nothing to do with how the other experiences himself, and we're each like fighting our fantasy antagonist to the other. We're, we're fighting past each other, we're not even fighting each other. And we're both employing, even if the goal is just to win, forget peace, like if my goal is just to win and beat the enemy, we are, you, both sides are employing very counterproductive methods of struggle because we're not fighting the other as he experiences himself, but rather as we have cast him as the antagonist yes, yeah, in our story. I, I've never thought about it that way, and I think you're absolutely right when I, the way you've said it. And that's why it's so important to know one another mm -hmm. and try to see how the other person experiences life. Mm -hmm. And... Right, without feeling your own story threatened. It, it takes courage. We, we have two hands. We can hold multiple right. truths. We can contain right. multitudes. I look at my job as a peace activist as trying to create a bigger narrative that's inclusive enough to encompass both ostensibly rival narratives. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, ultimately, the, there's, there is an objective truth. I'm not a postmodernist. I do believe there's a capital T truth, what we can call a divine truth, but I think that that capital T truth includes within it a multiplicity of ostensibly rival truths, and the more inclusive we are of other people's truths, the closer we come to divine truth. But I think that those who are most firmly rooted in their own story and their own narrative are probably those who are most able to let down their guard and engage the narrative of the other without feeling like immediately threatened. Absolutely. I think the more secure you are in mm -hmm. who you are, the more able you are to embrace 
people without feeling that your own identity is in any way challenged. Right. And that's one of the things that is so heartbreaking about you know, the, the flag parade. To celebrate Jerusalem Day, there's two parade routes and when you get to the Old City, one through Jaffa Gate to the Western Wall and the other through the Muslim Quarter where people are, where the shopkeepers are told by the police and by the army, shut down because you're not safe. Because tens of thousands of, uh, of, of people are marching through. Of young Jewish na- of young nationalists. Jew- yeah, and, and some older ones as well. Just right. And it, 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 they bang on the walls, they bang on the doors. Some people are carrying weapons and there's and sometimes the chants turn very ugly. So and l- let me ask you a question. What do you think they think they're doing? Those who are marching through the Muslim quarter. Right? They're asserting their right to be there. They're asserting their right to be Because they feel that generally they can't go there. Right. I think that that's part of it. I think also there have been terror attacks in the Muslim quarter, not infrequently. I mean, it happens once, at least once a year, as far as I can tell, usually more. And so now there's like an obligation to go and march. Right. It's sort of a big fat fuck you to the residents. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, a nation that feels truly strong and truly secure mm-hmm. doesn't need to do that because the people who are are living and working there are, are just folks who want to keep their businesses open and now they have to shut down for their own safety and, and kids are told to clear out and, and, and stay inside and we don't need to do that a friend of mine named Sally Abrams wrote a beautiful blog piece on Times of Israel with, um, about how we shouldn't be dancing in the end zone we won the war in 1967 mm-hmm. and we have to find a better way to celebrate our, our victory well maybe that's part of the problem maybe we're not sure we won I think that's. I think that at is. At least since the Oslo. I think that's era. why we're so swayed by rhetoric that tells us that you know that we're our existence is threatened. Mm-hmm. It's not. We're I mean, actually quite strong. Well, I, I think as a Jew who's been who spent the last two decades living in different parts of the West Bank and East Jerusalem, I think we do feel threatened. Like we feel that I, I would say that the uh, we're not all homogenous Jews living in the West Bank, but there's a common denominator I think we share, and that's this idea that we are a proud ancient people from this land. We were unjustly displaced against our will nearly 2,000 years ago. We managed to come back against all odds, and now we feel like the international community is trying to displace us again. And the only way we know how to resist that is to populate as much of the territory as possible to make it logistically hard for people to remove us. And, and I think that like the normal situation from my perspective would be that Palestinians can walk through Jewish neighborhoods, Jews can walk through Palestinian neighborhoods. We don't feel like we need an armed escort to walk through the Muslim quarter of the old city. They shouldn't feel like they need an armed escort to come through the Jewish quarter. But now, I think, you know, 52 years later, I think part of the problem is that we haven't figured out what we're doing here. Like the fact that we still have refugee camps you know, in this country, 52 years later, after Jews, you know, asserted sovereignty. We're not behaving like an independent people. We're not behaving like an independent people. We're, we're behaving like we're, like, temporary. And I think uh, Palestinians are very much victims of a Jewish identity crisis here. On the one hand, we, like, came back to the cradle of Jewish civilization. These are the places we've been dreaming about for thousands of years. Um, on the other hand, the Americans and Europeans want us out of here. On the other hand, we need the mountains to protect our densest population centers. On the other hand, look at all the non-Jews. How are we going to make this work demographically if we absorb them into our society? So for the last 52 years, we've done everything and nothing, and, and it's just a big mess, and we feel insecure. Palestinians feel insecure. There's understandable mutual animosity and distrust. Um, no, obviously I think that because the power dynamics favor us at the moment, it's probably our responsibility to make the first move towards building trust. 
And I mean, I have ideas on what that looks like, but what do you think? You think that, uh, what can we do to, if tomorrow you became the Prime Minister, <laughs> what would you do in, to solve this conflict? Oh, you know, the, one of the first things I would do mm -hmm. is get to the children. Okay. And figure out ways to make education as integrated as possible. And I'm, again, not just talking about Jews and Arabs learning side by side, mm -hmm. but secular and religious mm -hmm. learning together and figure out a way to, to have classrooms set up where part of the day is mixed, mm -hmm. where people get to know one another. Because when two-year-olds are peeing next to each other in the sandbox, it's harder to grow up and hate the other because the other is the kid you share a snack with. That your or that with. kid who tried to mark my territory with his pee. Well, you know, that <laughs> gets solved in the sandbox. This is the so Middle East. That's true. But I think we have to learn each other's languages. Uh -huh. we, um, well, that's true. I think Arabic. we absolutely should Arab be learning Arabic. Do. They need to learn Hebrew. And, and, and they do. And the older generation knows Hebrew. Like, and, I will in Jerusalem, it's different. But in most of the West Bank, you find the older Palestinians know Hebrew. They're called, actually, in Palestinian society, the Hebrew speakers. Mm -hmm. And the younger know English. Right. But uh, and the same thing, in, it's similar in East Jerusalem as uh -huh. well. And you know, there's starting to be a move. What's actually interesting about what's happening in Jerusalem right mm. now is I'm seeing a move where Jewish Jerusalemites are learning Arabic mm. and, um, and Arab Jerusalemites are starting to learn Hebrew. But there is a, a desire to be able to speak each other's right. My wife actually spoke to the local school about uh, our kids, instead of learning English in school, learning Arabic. Because we can teach them English. Sure, and TV can teach them English right. easily. You know, and and it's more important that they learn Arabic. Uh, so the only, the only pushback I'd give you in terms of integrating school is I think most of the peoples here are very connected to their identities. So and we can have part of the day spent mm -hmm. in separate schools dealing with identity. You know, if there are kids who want to be studying Quran, then they can go. Mm -hmm. There'll be classes for that or, um, you know, the... There can be classes for Jewish history. There can be classes for Christianity. And then there can even be classes once a week or twice a month. Or so. You work it out somehow where Jewish kids can come into the classroom and teach Arab kids about Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And then Arab kids come in and teach well, Jewish kids about their history. On that level where mm -hmm. the stories are told from the voices of four, five, six, ten, eleven, fifteen-year-olds, mm -hmm. and they really, truly start to grow up side by side. It won't be perfect at right. first. It'll be messy, and there'll have to be incentives offered to communities because the people who are interested in these sorts of things, they're the ones who don't need it. Right. No, that, that's so a great point. Incentives. In fact, the opposite. I think the, those who participate in these things should be those who are most strongly connected to their identities. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, it's similar in, in the piece work that we do um, in, in my organization. We're actually taking the, like, quote-unquote radicals on both sides, those who are, like, fully living the aspirations of their peoples, those who are willing to fight, kill, and die for what they believe to be important to their national story, and we're bringing them together. And uh, we find that that's so much more productive than just bringing, like, the westernized diplomat from Tel Aviv and Ramallah and having right. them sign an American piece of paper. Like, we're actually bringing those who are, like, living their story, connected to their identity, and strong enough to engage the other. And I think so if it was if it was Jewish and Palestinian children who are like children who are really connected to like their story and able to share their story with the other, I think that could work. But if it's if it's simply like those who just like you know, they know what's on T V and they know what's on Netflix and they don't really know their people's story and they're like the westernized kids from both sides who are gonna come and meet and well, we all like NBA basketball and we all like pizza, so why don't we just like kumbaya? Right, that's not enough. Yeah. That won't be enough. 
be sustained for 20, right. 30, 40 but years. Especially Although, when you look you at know, the trajectory of this country. <laughs> yeah, you have to remember that, uh, you know, whenever we talk about solutions here, we have to keep in mind the demographic trajectory of Israeli society and Palestinian society. And the fastest growing populations, the ones that have the most kids, are usually those who are more connected to their identities mm -hmm. and more traditional, more tribalist. So uh, I feel they need to be the target. I agree. Yeah. I really agree, and there have to be incentives to encourage them to do so, because it's not easy. It's really, really, really not easy to to take that step out of what you know. But once you do, I think it can be really meaningful, powerful, and, and transcend all odds. All right, well, some people are waiting for us. We have to go perform. Likewise, likewise. Thank you for coming on. And uh, so this is U.Coin with Sarah Tuttle-Singer on the next stage, Vision Magazine. Catch us next time.